0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Genesis chapter 22, for those that were with us last week, we had um, left off with the sacrifice of Isaac that God had called Abraham to be willing to lay down the life of his son without a whole lot of instruction or without a whole lot of reasoning. Um, And we saw Abraham's faithfulness uh, to carry through with those instructions, and we I'm examined uh, the the things that we learn from his response and how they apply to us in our own response of obedience to what God has called us to do as well. We pick up this week in uh, verse 15 of Genesis chapter 22, it says, and the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, Buzz, his brother, Chemiel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethul. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ramah, bore Teba, Gaham, Tehash, and Mekah. Last week, we, we said that ultimately God's promises are designed to empower the believer with obedient faith during times of trial, showing one's faith to be genuine. Okay, so at the beginning of this chapter, God comes to Abraham. It says in verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So we talked about God's promises driving Abraham all through this test. That God comes to test him, to show his faith to be genuine. Abraham responds with obedient faith, but his obedience is motivated by belief in God's promises. Um, And we see this highlighted all through the journey. We even talked about last week, why would God require a 30 to 50 mile journey journey For Abraham to go and offer his son. Abraham's been offering sacrifices all over the promised land. Why does he need to travel 50 plus miles potentially. To offer a sacrifice that ultimately God knows he's not actually going to require. We said there was a couple of reasons for this. One time for Abraham to have to think and reconcile what he believes about God. So every step of the way. Every process. Every preparation. Abraham is thinking through. Am I going to take the next step? Am I going to go the next step? And he's clinging to God's promises each step of the way. We also said it's significant because where he ends up locating for this sacrifice ultimately ends up being the location of Solomon's temple where many other sacrifices would be offered. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of parallel to what would be coming in the Old Testament sacrifice system. And then it's not far from here where Jesus would be sacrificed later on in the New Testament. Okay, so a lot of reasons for why God calls him to take this journey. We said last week that we should expect tests from God, that oftentimes God takes us through challenging situations to refine our faith, to prove our faith, to strengthen our faith. Um, And in the midst of that, we should strive for immediate obedience. We highlighted the fact that Abraham gets instructions to sacrifice the son that he's been waiting years for. Early the next morning, he's up and he's cutting wood and preparing everything necessary to do this. That there's no hesitation in Abraham. There's no there's no lackadaisical attitude. There's no hope beyond hope that maybe this will not be what God said, that maybe he misunderstood God. He carries through immediately. And he's focusing on promises, not explanations. He doesn't ask God what the deal is. He doesn't ask for an explanation. He just moves forward with immediate obedience. We said that he, cuted, he cut the wood early. He didn't wait to see if there was wood where he was going. We said that most commentators believe that he cut the wood and took wood because he wasn't sure if there would be wood. And we said, what a, what a way out to get there and not be able to follow through in obedience because there's no wood to create a sacrifice. That he anticipated what it would take to be obedient when he got there. And he took every preparation necessary to make sure he could be obedient in a very difficult situation. And then all along the way, it's like Abraham's worshiping and and praising God for these promises Um, in the midst of his discussion with the two guys that come with him. He says, hey, you're going to stay here. Me and my son are going over there to worship. And then we're both coming back. A strong belief that whatever happened on that mountain was going to result in Isaac still being alive. Um, And we know that, he goes further and tells Isaac that God's going to provide some type of sacrifice. And then Hebrews gives us insight into the inner workings of Abraham's mind that he believed, if necessary, if he actually had to follow through with killing his son, that God was going to raise him from the dead. So all of his obedience is motivated by belief in the promise that Isaac is the promised son. We should depend upon God's provision in the midst of tests. Um, Abraham teaches his son Isaac this. I um, mean, we should look forward to the results. Uh, scripture tells us that trials are designed for specific purposes to push us to spiritual maturity, to show our faith to be genuine, uh, to give us a clear picture of who God is. That Abraham comes out of this talking about God being the great provider. Um, and he can say that he can attest to that because he's been in a situation where God had to provide for him. So all the names that we see of God in Scripture Those names are given to God because of experiences that his people have with him and being able to draw upon how he delivered for them in different situations. So the application question I left you with last week, what plans do you have this year to ensure that your understanding of God's promises will continue to increase in preparations for the trials that you will face? Realizing God's going to give us tests this year. Over the course of 2016, there are things that are coming that we have yet to anticipate. How will we ensure that our, prom, our understanding of God's promises is where it needs to be so that when we go through those trials, we go through those tests, we're able to draw upon those promises and stay obedient in those situations. Okay, so that brings us to the conclusion of today's chapter here in verse 15. We saw Abraham's test last week. We're not going to see uh, the results of that test, a passing grade that God gives to him as he commends him for his faith. Let me give you our summary sentence for today. So you can understand where we're going. Our summary sentence, while God's promises empower the believer to obedience, the believer's obedience invokes God's active favor and blessing. Okay? So God's promises help spur a believer on to obedience. God's promises empower a believer to be obedient. In the midst of trials, in the midst of tests, we draw upon God's promises and we are obedient in the midst of difficult situations. But then our obedience in those situations invokes God's active favor and blessing. It invites it. God responds to our obedience in faith with favor And blessing. We see this picture especially in um, Isaac. Let's see here in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verse 20. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on both Jacob and Esau. Okay, so our obedience. Uh, motivated by faith, invokes God's active favor and blessing. All right, so we go back to Genesis chapter 22. Everything's kind of been said and done. Uh, Abraham was willing to offer his son. God stops him. Um, Abraham looks up and sees the provision of the ram, sacrifices the ram. Abraham and Isaac kind of see that substitutionary atonement picture where one has been provided in place of another. And then in verse 15, the angel of the Lord calls to Abraham by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this. And if not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. We start by looking at this passage today, highlighting the obedience of Abraham. God highlights the obedience of Abraham. He says, because you've done this, this is how I plan to respond. This is the first occurrence of the word obey in Genesis, okay? So going back to that theme, every time we see the origin of a word or a concept, it should stand out to us because it probably drives our understanding of that word moving forward in Scripture. So if we think, if we think in terms of this being the first time that the word obey is mentioned in Genesis, we can then understand that obedience first comes towards God, that there are other people that we're called to obey, right? We're called to obey authorities, We're called to obey parents, but obviously our first order of obedience is to our creator. Okay, so the first time the word obey is mentioned, it's mentioned in reference to Abraham obeying his creator, not obeying his fatherly instincts to protect his son, because this comes in a situation where he is offering up his son putting his son in harm's way where his son is going to be killed. So obedience comes first, not to our feelings, not to our emotions, not to our thoughts, not to our will, not to authorities, not to other people. It comes ultimately to our creator. I think God intentionally reveals this word to us in this context for the very first time. So we get a grasp on that. Secondly, I think we can see that obedience results in rich blessing from God. It's in response to Abraham's obedience that rich blessings start to flow out from his creator. Faithful, faithful believers have assurance of God's blessing when they're being obedient. God says, in response to what you've done, in response to your willingness to offer up your son, I will surely bless you. So a point that I want to highlight for us, our level of obedience correlates with our level of belief. How obedient we are correlates with how much we believe about God. Okay? Abraham's offering up his son. For him to be on that level of obedience, it necessitates him be on a high level of belief in God's promises. This this isn't an immature Christian who, who knows very little of God's word and has very little experience with God's faithfulness that would step up to the plate and say, Let me offer my son because God's called me to do this. This is a man who is entrenched in God's promises and clinging to those promises. And we know this because it's coming out in his verbiage to everybody that he's talking to along this journey. When he talks to his son, God's going to provide a sacrifice. Why would he have any reason to think that there's going to be an animal readily available to be captured on the top of a mountain to be offered instead of Isaac? He He's telling these two men, I'm coming back and my son's coming back with me after we're done worshiping. And even in the back of his mind, he's knowing if I have to do this, God's going to bring my son back from the dead. And we talked about the fact that he has no Sunday school stories to rely upon about God bringing people back from the dead. If it had occurred here, this would have been the first time somebody had been brought back from the dead in Scripture's recordings. So no history to bank upon this so he really does believe that nothing is too hard for God that nothing is impossible for God now God's been teaching him these things right he's been he's been telling Abraham these things don't doubt me i know you're old i know your wife's old don't doubt the fact that the two of you can still have a baby if i'm telling you you can still have a baby so he's learning this lesson and now he's applying it God doesn't God doesn't come to him and say offer your son and I can bring him back from the dead. He doesn't call Abraham to believe that by telling him that. He expects Abraham to take a belief that he can create life in a in a dead womb, a womb that's incapable of making children. That's the story that he does know. Now here's a new situation, and he's saying, will you believe that I'm a God of the impossible? Because he's not told Abraham that he can raise people from the dead. Abraham's just banking on the fact that He must be able to do this because this is the son. This is the promised son. Okay, so that translates for us in our lives because we experience trials and situations where we don't necessarily have clear promises uh, that God is going to do things a certain way. But we can, in those situations, believe that he's a God of the impossible, that he that nothing is too hard for him. And that if he can if he can um, create life in dead wombs, if he can raise people from the dead, because we do see this later in Scripture then he's certainly able to overcome anything that we're experiencing in our life. He's the great provider, Abraham says. He's also the great tester. Scripture promises that God brings his people through tests, but he also provides everything that they need to come through that test. Okay, so Abraham's obedience, it's correlating with his level of belief. The more we trust in God, the more apt we are to sacrifice for him. God asks for our best, As a sign that we believe him to be the best. Abraham was willing to forfeit all things for God. He was willing to have the scene cleared of everything but God. I mean, that's the picture here. God's talking about taking really everything that's important to him. He's talking about taking his son away from him. And he says, you can take everything else away. I'm not willing to sacrifice my devotion to God. Like we kind of see what's the most important thing to him. He says, clear everything else out. You can take everything else away. This is what's most important to me. I don't know if you've ever had a situation where uh, your computer started to fail and your hard drive started to crash. I've been in that situation a couple of times, and it's the most horrific feeling when you've got all of your sermon notes, all of your pictures, all of your everything stored on a device, and then you start getting weird messages that it's crashing and then it's breaking, and you've been so busy, you haven't backed any of it up, and you're thinking, why, why, why haven't I done these things? I've been in situations where you start hearing people, and I've been in computer stores where you start hearing people say, I need you to save this, like everything else is expendable, you can take everything else away, I need my pictures. For me, it was, I need my sermon notes, like that is years of what God has taught me, that's where I've stored it. Um, And so I've been in those situations. It's like Abraham's in a situation where everything's about to be taken away and you hear what's most important to him. You hear what he can't do without. This is what has to be saved. This is what has to be preserved. It's his relationship with his creator. Even if it means the sacrifice of his son, he's not willing to compromise his belief and his faithful response to his creator. Secondly, Our proper love for things makes us eligible to receive more things. Our proper love for things makes us eligible to receive more things. Our proper love for things makes us eligible to receive more things. Essentially, what we have here is God coming to Abraham and saying, because you have not withheld your only son from me, I will bless you. Abraham's willingness, his willingness to not love good gifts more than the creator himself made him eligible to receive an abundance of good things from his creator. Think about that. Abraham's willingness to not love good gifts more than his creator made him eligible to receive more things from his creator. See, see, God looks down at Abraham and says, if you don't love things more than me then you're exactly the type of person that I desire to give my things to because they're not going to replace me in your life. Abraham is called to give up the most important thing. And God says, now that I know you're not going to withhold the most precious thing to you when I ask for it, I can now freely give you all things because you understand the right place of the creator and the, the giver and the gift. You understand that that I'm the supreme treasure and not the things that come from me. And that precisely makes me want to give you these things that I'm promising to you. It kind of leaves me with the question in my own life. Is there anything that God could suddenly take from me that would make me love him less? I want you to contemplate that question for a second. Is there anything in your life that God could ask you to give or that God could take from you? that would cause you to love him less. And if there are things that come to our mind, they are things that we have come to love too much. See, Abraham, the next morning, immediately is up and ready to give his only son, the son that he loves dearly. It shows that he didn't love Isaac more than the one that had given Isaac to him. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 37 lest we think this was just a requirement for Abraham that he not love his kids too much. Matthew 10, 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I mean, it's easy for us to think that... Um, That it's okay to to love our kids and to love our wives so much. That's that's a proper response. God has given us those things in our life. He's given us those good gifts. But they can never usurp the place of God in our life. Jesus is saying, we can't love these things more than him. We we can't love these things more than him. Which which implies to me that if they were to be taken away, then my love for him can't decrease. Can't decrease. And, And we know of people... And I believe that oftentimes it shows the genuineness of someone's faith, people who have lost precious things to them. And it has caused their love for Christ to decrease and it has caused them to wander from the faith. And it has caused them to walk away and abandon the faith, revealing themselves to be the type of seed that initially springs up. And then when the things of the world um, are taken from them, their faith is choked out. Abraham is a is a great example to us. And remember, we've set him up. The New Testament sets him up as kind of the example of what it looks like to come to Christ and to persevere and to grow in one's faith, what it means to be to to, to be um, counted righteous through faith. He's that prime example. And he's also an example to us today that we can't put anything, anything in a place that if it was taken from us, our love for God would decrease. This question was also one that surrounded Job in the Old Testament. The question posed to God by Satan is, would he praise God in times of plenty and in times of want? Remember, Satan justifies to God that, that Job, Job only loves you because you give him everything, right? You, you've got a hedge of protection around him. Nobody can touch him. You've given him everything that he wants. Why would he not praise your name? And Satan's challenge was, if you take everything away, Then he will curse you. Remember in the New Testament, Paul says, I've learned a state of contentment. I can be brought high and I can be brought low. And my contentment with what God is doing in my life does not change. In the context, he's praising people that have given him money for his mission endeavors. He says, I am grateful and thankful for the money that you've given me. It doesn't increase my contentment, though. He says, I can have a lot of money. I can have no money. I can have good food and good lodging. I can have zero food, zero lodging. I'm completely content in God's goodwill for my life. Job passed the test. Abraham passed the test. Both demonstrate their love for God supersedes their love for anything this world offers. The truth becomes known to all when adversity comes. When adversity strikes us, it's then evidence as to whether or not we have faith in the God that we claim to trust, the God that we claim has made promises to us. I've got a quote here from one commentary, the one who fears God, that is the faithful worshiper, will obediently surrender to God whatever he asks, trusting in God's promises of provision and blessing. The one who fears God, that is the faithful worshiper, will obediently surrender to God whatever he asks, trusting in God's promises of provision and blessing. There's some highlights I want to point out to you before we move away from Abraham's obedience Some of the highlights of Abraham's obedience that we see both in this chapter and in some of the previous chapters. We first of all see that immediate immediate obedience we've talked about. We said that he got up early and was ready to chop wood and get ready for this sacrifice. But it's not the first time that we've seen immediate obedience from Abraham. Back in Genesis 17 verse 23. This is when God gives the command for, um, for circumcision it says when he had finished talking with him god went up from abraham then abraham took ishmael his son and all those born in his house or bought with his money every male among the men of abraham's house and he circumcised circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as god had said to him i mean you get that you get that command that you've got to do this to your your son that's not a baby so you've got to, you've got to go and inflict harm upon your son and then all of the other guys that are a part of your camp you got to go do this. I mean, this immediately would be like, this is not going to go over well. This is going to take some discussion. Like, I'm going to need to figure out how do I present what God has commanded us to do. He doesn't take a lot of time to think about it, right? Like, that very day, he's got Ishmael under the knife, and he's got everybody else that's a male in his household under the knife as well. Immediate response. Immediate obedience. In Genesis chapter 21, In verse uh, 14, this is the instructions that God gives to Abraham. Remember, Sarah says, get rid of Hagar, get rid of Ishmael, a boy that he loves, a boy that's 13, 14, 15 years old, not a baby. He loves him dearly. He's his only son. God says, get rid of him. Send him out to the desert, says verse 14. So Abraham rose early in the morning took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it off on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. Abraham doesn't reason and say, hey, let's go out and have breakfast one more time, and then let's have lunch, and then let's spend the afternoon together. This is my last day with my son. Let's draw it out as long as we can. It says that that very morning, early that morning, he's putting preparations together to do exactly what God's called him to do. We've already seen it in Genesis 22. He does the same thing with Isaac. Psalm 119 gives us the heart behind this type of attitude. Psalm 119, verse 60. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. That's the example that Abraham sets to us. Number two, sustained obedience. Sustained obedience. Not only does he immediately respond in obedience, he continues to respond all along this journey to offering his son. He doesn't waver in his belief. He has a settled obedience, meaning there's no outward sign of worry to his son, to the guys that are going with him. He considered this whole process an act of worship. And then a point we we highlighted last week, a contagious obedience. Remember, Isaac is of age where he's not placing a little baby on the altar. He's placing a grown man upon the altar. Probably a grown man that had to get on the altar himself because of Abraham's age and strength. So this is a contagious obedience. He's teaching his son, Isaac, to be obedient to the same God he's obeying. It's a reminder to us that others should be learning from us, that our obedience to God should be contagious as well, that others should look to us, how we respond to trials, how we give glory to God in the midst of difficulties. They should learn from us and should follow suit in the same way that Isaac does in this situation. And then where we're headed, number five, rewarded obedience. God responded to Abraham's faith. He responded to Abraham's faith. He rewarded that faith. He rewarded that obedience, which brings us to this last section of the chapter, the blessing of God, the blessing of God. <clears throat> so Abraham has passed this test. He has done exactly what God has called him to do. He has not wavered. He's willing to lay down the life of his son. And God now wants to respond to them. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. There's eight times in in this section of Genesis where God speaks directly to Abraham, at least recorded for us in Scripture, eight times. This is the last time that, that Abraham hears from God directly. We're about to transition from Abraham to Isaac. This is the last recorded incident of God communicating promises to Abraham. And we see God swearing upon himself. He says, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, I will do this. God swears upon himself regarding the blessings and the promises. And he's done this. He does it this way to make clear That he does not change and that his promises and his word can be counted upon. We get insight into this in Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, the author there draws upon this passage in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. This is God communicating double assurance to Abraham and to all people after him that his word is sure and that his promises are guaranteed. The blessing of God. First of all, there is always an afterward when it comes to God's tests. There's always an afterward when it comes to God's tests, meaning they're not without purpose. They're they're not without reason. God doesn't just bring things into our life. He doesn't just make us go through hard times for no apparent reason. He has reasons. He has purposes. Job chapter 23, Job starting to see or at least expects there to be a purpose through what he's going through. Job chapter 23, verse 10. But he knows the way that I take when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. In the New Testament, First Peter chapter 5, verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God is at work in our life. He's at work in the midst of trials and difficulties. He has a purpose, and he has an afterward. There's a reason for why he gives it. You know, sometimes I challenge my teachers. Don't just assign homework. Don't just give assignments because you're bored or you don't have something to do for class that day. Don't just pass out worksheets for no apparent reason. Have a purpose for everything you do in the classroom. Have an end goal in mind. This is what I want to teach. You know, I started challenging my teachers. Before you give me lesson plans, tell me what you're trying to accomplish in class that day. I don't want to know what work pages you're doing. I don't want to know what pages you're reading. I want to know what you're trying to teach the kids that day. And then I want to see how you plan to do it. I want to see the afterward. What is after class supposed to look like? What are these students supposed to know after class? What are they supposed to know after this 45 minutes? What's your goal? What's your purpose? And so we see God has an afterward for his tests as well. He plans to bring us through. He plans to restore, to confirm, to strengthen, to establish us. Always an afterward. Some of the results from Abraham's obedience that he's highlighting here. One, Abraham is commended for his faith. Um, God is highlighting and drawing upon the fact that Abraham has done exactly what he's supposed to do. Hebrews 11, one, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. Abraham is commended for his faith as a result of his obedience. But secondly, he's blessed by God abundantly. God blesses him for his obedience. God says, you don't love things more than me. I want to give you more things. You're you're capable of handling it. The big promise here that's reiterated once again is that his descendants will not be able to be counted. He says, I'm going to give you descendants that that are as the stars of heaven and as, as the sand is on the seashore. They will not be countable. He's shown to be righteous in response to this obedience. James draws upon this and reveals the, the proof in the pudding, basically about Abraham. James chapter 2, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, okay? So as he's journeying to offer his son, he's got faith and works that are active alongside of each other. Faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled. It says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That the genuineness of Abraham's faith that we talked about in previous chapters is now coming to fruition. It's growing up, it's matured, and it's demonstrating its maturity on the grandest scale. He's shown to be righteous here. And then he gets these promises, these confirmed promises that are for all of God's people, right? It's not just for Abraham. People that come after Abraham are going to benefit because of his obedience. Think what it says offspring, stars of heaven, sand is the seashore, your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. We have that same assurance in the New Testament that we prevail against our enemies, right? In the Old Testament, there was guaranteed that they were going to survive Egypt. They were going to survive the invasion of the promised land. In the New Testament, we know that we don't war against flesh and blood, right? Instead, we're in a spiritual battle. And we're in a spiritual battle to expand God's kingdom. There's oftentimes attacks against the church, against Christians. But what we have assurance of that I think can be tied to this promise That we're going to prevail against the gates of our enemies in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And I tell you, uh, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Satan's forces would love to would love to squinch and, and, and stop. The the advancement of God's kingdom through the church would love to bring persecution upon the church and stop pastors and and teachers from expanding the gospel. Satan would love to stop our team from going to Uganda. Remember, Paul talked in Thessalonians about Satan hindering him from getting where he wanted to go, but that ultimately the gospel would go forth. The assurance, the promises that Abraham's descendants will prevail against their enemies. There's also a promise blessing through the seed. It's not just Abraham's physical offspring. Galatians gives us insight into how to understand the seed. Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of all these promises. That Christ stands against his enemies and Christ brings every blessing, right? In Ephesians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So through God, through Abraham's seed, Jesus, all nations would be blessed. We have believers springing up in all nations, and according to Ephesians, they are blessed with every spiritual blessing. There's a universal aspect through these similes, the stars and the sand. Um Did a little bit of research and I was surprised to know um, when you look up into the stars or up into the sky to see the stars, there's only about 3,000 that are visible to the naked eye. So if you're thinking in terms of Abraham, let's just say he decides to get crazy and just starts trying to count, even if he was able to count all the stars that he could see, 3,000 people is not a giant nation, right? I mean, it looks overwhelming when you look up there, but if you really started to count what you could see, there's 3,000 offspring that are to come. That's great, God. I appreciate that. But it's not as grand as maybe I first thought when you said look up into the skies. You look at the sand on the seashore, though. And that's, that's something that I can really comprehend. I start picking up sand on the seashore, and, and I can really begin to see there's a lot more than 3,000 grains of sand in my hand. What's interesting, and I don't know how true this is, but in, in some of the scientific commentaries that I was looking at, um, it's been estimated that on this earth there are 10 to the 25th power Amounts of grains of sand on the seashore. And then they also estimate through uh, telescopes and through their research, there's almost an equal number of stars in the heavens beyond what we can see. So it's interesting to see that perhaps God has created both of these analogies to be almost equal in number, but also a number that is virtually uncountable, right? 10 to the 25th power, I don't even know if we have a name for that number. it's certainly a large number that we don't use in everyday language, right? It's, it's a lot more than three thousand. Um, so a grand promise to Abraham, which, again, when we think in terms of the spiritual connotation, right? In the New Testament, it's not just people that come from Abraham that are counted as seed. It's those that are of faith to think in terms of believers numbering that type of number. People that will be in heaven around the throne worshiping the lamb worthy is he for all that's been accomplished that's a grand scene um, to be standing in that setting for eternity looking out and seeing people as far as we can see that that number the sands of the seashore and the sky the stars in the sky it's a beautiful promise and it certainly means that the gates of hell will not prevail against the advancement of god's church the last point i want to share with you before we close today there's always more going on that we don't always see. There's an afterward to God's tests, But then there's always more going on that we don't always see. You get to the end of this chapter. And you're just like, why is this part included in this chapter? Um, who cares what's happening back home with Abraham and his brother and their kids? Um now, after these things, it was told to Abraham, behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother, Nahor. And it begins to list off these offspring. Rebekah's name is thrown in there. Um, the genealogy here is meant to show family relationship. We've talked about different purposes of genealogies. This purpose here is to show that when Rebekah comes onto the scene as Isaac's wife, there's connection with the family. OK, so the genealogy is listed here so we can see how she relates to Abraham um and his offspring. Um, I think it's interesting to note that God promises Abraham once again, all these promises about his offspring on the heels of him learning how fertile his brother's been. I mean, think about it. We don't know that he's had any knowledge of what's gone on at home since he left until this point. And somehow, some way, word comes to him. Hey, we heard you had Isaac. Congratulations. Look what your brother's done. Look at all these boys that he's had, you know, and like there's this long list of individuals that Nahor's had. And this could have this could have been difficult for Abraham, right? He's at the end of his life. He's so proud of Isaac. He's kind of been disconnected from home, disconnected from family. Somebody shows up and says, Nahor's been real fertile over the last few years that you haven't been around. Look at all your relatives that are back home that you didn't know about. And I think Abraham is able to rely on this recent promise. Hey, that's OK. OK. I've got a lot of offspring coming that are going to far outnumber Nahors, right? I think God's very gracious in how He communicates promises. Once again, before He finds out about this, um, but what I think is really interesting is that while Abraham left his home, God didn't. Think about it. We left. We left Ur, right? We left Ur, the Chaldees. We, le- we left where Abraham was dwelling, but Abraham's family didn't leave. And what's interesting to note is that God didn't leave that area either. God said, leave, go to another country. And it can, easy, it can be easy to think that as we read the narratives of the Old Testament that God is only at work in Abraham's life over all these years and fail to see that God is concerned with everything that's going on on the earth. There's all kinds of peoples and stories that aren't recorded in Scripture that God was very active in as well. Right? There was a lot more people living at the time than Abraham and his little band of rogues. Right, um God's been at work at Nahor's household, and he's been overseeing everything so that Rebecca is growing up, and Rebecca is going to be a suitable wife for Isaac, right Abraham doesn't want to give Isaac to anybody that, that he sees in the area. he wants a family connection, and God has been overseeing the growth and development of of Rebecca as well, knowing that she would be in addition to the covenant. This section right here sets the stage for the choosing of Rebecca. And what we're going to see in the coming weeks is the focus begins to shift now from Abraham to Isaac and how God continues to carry his promises through the line from Isaac into his children. Our application thought for today. All who put their hope in the promises of God can rest in obedience to him, knowing they will never be disappointed Our summary sentence was, well, God's promises empower the believer to obedience. The believer's obedience invokes God's active favor and blessing. What that means for us is that we can put our hope in what God tells us and what God promises us. We can rest and be obedient whatever situation we face, whatever circumstance we face. We can be obedient in that situation, knowing that on the other side of it, that afterward, we're not going to be disappointed in the return that we get from it. And that's not a guarantee or a promise of material things, right? When we read that passage in 1 Peter, it's not if you give up something and if God takes something from you, as long as you respond properly, he's going to give you doubly what you lost. We see that at times in Scripture, right? We see Job get really more than what he had lost. We see Abraham get his son, figuratively speaking, back from the dead. That doesn't always happen, right? There are people that lose a spouse, that lose a child, and they're obedient through the process. And on the back end of things, they don't get that back. 1 Peter 5 says that that we do have the promise of strength and confirmation and establishment. The assurance is that we're stronger on the other side of that than we were going into it. And that God has received more glory after than what he was receiving before that he has used that situation to glorify himself in new ways, unique ways in our life, in the lives of others that are watching. We come out with new experiences of God, like Abraham, who now says God is the provider. Why? Because I saw him provide in a very difficult situation for me. We can put our hope in God's promises. We can rest in obedience, knowing that that we will never be disappointed in the afterward. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for... These past several months, time that we've had to look specifically into Abraham's life and ultimately see how you've been at work every step of the way. In calling him, in growing him, in, in forgiving him in the midst of, of sin and scandalous situations. Um, Father, we, we've seen that you didn't give up on him. We've seen that you started a good work in him. And as James talks about, you finished the work. His faith came to fruition. Uh, the, the, The belief that he placed in you at the very outset continued to grow, continued to be strengthened throughout his life. And when he went through the most difficult time, the difficult trial, the difficult test, he passed with flying colors. Not because of anything inside of him, but because of the work that you had done in growing his faith to believe in your promises. And so, Father, we're praying as your children, as offspring of Abraham, who are part of that number that's compared to the stars in the sky and the sands in the seashore, as, as individuals that are a part of that number. God, we're praying that we would have the same type of faith in you in 2016 as we face different situations, different circumstances that are going to challenge our faith, that are going to test our faith. Father, I pray that we too would pass with flying colors, that we would come through those trials and difficulties clinging to your promises, striving to be immediately obedient and responsive to you in the midst of them. God, we're praying that others would be able to see our obedience and would learn from that obedience and would be drawn to, to live in the same way. And God, we're praying that uh, through the midst of that, we'll be encouraged knowing that on the outside of that, on the other side of that, in the afterward time frame, that we receive your blessing, whatever that looks like. God, we're not claiming that, that you are a God who owes us anything because we've passed tests, but we do believe in scripture that you promise that there's a purpose for the test. And that you reward those who faithfully respond in obedience to you. And so, God, we're clinging to those truths. We're clinging to those promises. That you don't just give tests with no purpose. So, God, I pray that you would help us to be people who cling to your promises, grow our faith in you this year. Help us to rest in that surefast anchor of the soul, no matter what we face this week, in the coming weeks, in the coming months. We pray that we would give glory to you in all that we do. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.